Welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stories from the people who are making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. I'm your host, Ben Getz. Steve Palmer has spent his life in the restaurant industry, and first steeping his career in Charleston and then continuing here to Atlanta. And he picked up the reins with the Indigo Road, and they've expanded at quite an accelerated pace over just about 10 years. And restaurants that you're more than likely familiar with, maybe Oku or Donetto over on the west side, or Tiny Lou's anyone. But there's another aspect of Steve's story that you absolutely have to hear. And much of his career was met alongside of addiction and he found himself at a moment of intervention that would lead to the creation of Ben's Friends, a nonprofit organization offering hope to restaurant workers fighting substance abuse and addiction. And I won't jump to how Steve started everything because you just need to hear his story. But if you know, or maybe you have heard of someone who is battling addiction, maybe depressed, or just needs help and support, please don't hesitate to reach out. I would be absolutely thrilled to put you in touch with people from Ben's Friends or anyone who can offer this person that you know support or help or just resources. And also, Giving Kitchen recently announced free QPR training and a national stability network for anybody who is in need in the industry across the country. And if you need help or if you know someone who needs help, please do not wait. Please reach out. All of the information is available on this week's episode page. And again, if you would like to know more, please email me at atlfoodcast at gmail.com. But with that, let's get to Steve and his incredible story. Um, Steve Palmer, welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me in your establishment. And uh, especially thank you for being on the show. I'm sure. really excited to catch up with you. Um, you guys are everywhere and on fire and <laughs> yeah. doing amazing things. Thanks. And Donetto just happens to be one of the many places mm-hmm. uh, that you guys uh, call one of your concepts at Indigo Road. And um, we have a lot of fun stuff to chat about. And I'm really excited to to get into Indigo Road, but especially um, the nonprofit side that yes. you guys work on, being yeah. Ben's friends. And um, But before we get to all that, we have to go through some of the, the first steps of being a guest on the Atlanta Foodcast. I have to get to know you just a little bit. Sure. So, um, your first question that you're going to receive from me is you have to tell me who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? So, you know, you have to remember that I was a child of the 70s, right? So that's when I was in elementary school. And in the 70s, we got the crock pot. We got the microwave oven. Um, we got the chicken pot pie, the frozen TV dinner. <laughs> so I wish that I could tell you, you know, when I, I have envy when like chefs or other people say, oh, I grew up when my grandmother's cooking and I remember these recipes. And that was not my story. Um, I <laughs> ate vegetables out of a can. Um, over, over. I, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, my grandmothers really were were sort of the ones that cooked. That that there was deep recipes. My 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 grandmother. I had a grandmother in Fitzgerald, Georgia. Her husband built the first Coca Cola bottling plant outside of Atlanta. Oh wow! Uh, in Fitzgerald, of all places. Um, so there were a lot of you know chess box pie. Um, fried chicken, uh, you know, a Coca-Cola cake, obviously Coca-Cola was a big, okay. Let, was, let's pause there sure. because I grew up eating Coke cake, mostly camping 
and it would be like so not like and then i then i you know when i moved to virginia for school then i was introduced to cheer wine cake which oh, was yeah, like sure. a, the upper uh, echelon of like whoa right and now it's right. like red velvet it was right. amazing right but it was duncan hines cake mix mm-hmm. and oh, then yeah. just a can or a bottle of coke and we'd cook it over a campfire and that's how we did it growing See, up. See, that's much cooler than I'm sure. Than <laughs> I, I don't know how it was cooked. I knew right. I ate it a lot. Yeah, but it was like the it was like the the coup de gras church potluck dessert that went like that. That's right. It was always amazing. Yeah, so I'm glad that you had Coke cake I growing had, up. Yes, that, that's why you're so successful, Steve. <laughs> because it's a huge of my grandmother. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Now, Coke cake is amazing. It's it still is. even to this day. I don't know that my kids have had it yet, but when they do, it's going to blow their minds. Every once in a while, you'll see it on a restaurant recipe, yeah. you know, a menu somewhere, but not much. Yeah. Slice of it's eight bucks. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's that's cool that uh, that you're you're a Georgia slash yeah Atlanta yeah native. I'm an Atlanta native. Yeah. Born you're, and raised. You're one of the uh, maybe, I think it's 11 people now that I've had on the show where they're like, I grew up in Decatur. I grew up in Morningside. Right. And I'm not trying to do this. I just think it's amazing that people who are from the city are still in or around and yeah. doing amazing things. And It's, you know, I was born, there was a million people. So we're, what, at seven now? Oh, gosh. So yeah. it's pretty crazy to, you know, where South City Kitchen is on Crescent Avenue was actually my dad. He was a doctor. That's was where his practice was. Oh wow! In the seventies and eighties. So huh. uh, yeah, Midtown has the whole city has changed. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I caught up with the guys from um, Fifth Group actually, mm-hmm. and they yeah. had such an interesting perspective on opening South City Kitchen. Oh yeah, back in the eighties, late eighties, I think. Um, ninety two. Yeah, ninety two was yeah, when that's they opened. right. And because um, we all worked together, and speaking, you were talking earlier about the the tr- family tree. We all worked in Charleston together right. at a restaurant called Magnolia. Magnolia. Yep. Yes. Yep. And they had some really uh, fun. Everyone <laughs> everyone had very fun memories yes. uh, of working in, in Charleston, especially at Magnolia. And um, But just some of the things, you know, that if you, ha- if you have to try and put yourself in the middle of the street on Crescent Avenue in Midtown and you're looking around you, uh, trying to put your back, trying to put your mind back at 1992 and what they were describing, it doesn't really compute. Right. Of like, there was just this blank parking lot and we would have to try and like ask people to not squat in the parking lot because they're trying to open a restaurant oh yeah and, oh yeah and now it's just i mean now it's like you know high-rise apartments i know it's, 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 it's pretty over there it now. is pretty <laughs> it's, it's pretty yeah man that's so funny um tell me tell me how you how you naturally or even even if it was not natural but how did you progress into your career like what was the step in your childhood or early age like when did you know you wanted to get into the restaurant industry so i started waiting uh, washing dishes when i was 13 i'm not i'm convinced it wasn't legal but on (laughs) shamley dumwoody road there was this restaurant called yin's chinese they needed a dishwasher and they paid me three dollars cash an hour which at 13 that was like real money oh that's yeah and i was the only uh i was the only english american in the in the building and so i would go to work no one would speak to me because they were all talking chinese and i would work all night and they would slide a plate of whatever to me and as crazy as it sounds that was like the beginning of a culinary experience because i was eating cantonese mandarin i was eating this food that I mean, again, I'm growing up on TV dinners, and right. I was like, "What is this?" Um, and it, th- that was it for me at that moment in time. Like, 
it was restaurants from that point on. I, I was, uh, you know, worked at the Steak and Shake on Roswell Road as a, as a short order fry cook. Um, opened the first Houston's on Lenox Road oh, as, wow. a, as a line cook in high school. Yeah. But wasn't a really good line cook. Um, <laughs> I got yelled at, screamed. The, the first Fuddruckers that opened over at Perimeter Mall where we were cooking burgers to order and yeah. everything was on a clothespin. People would write yep. down there, so you'd have 75 burgers with somebody else's handwriting on temps, and I was messing it up all night long. So I pretty quickly figured out that out in the dining room where I wasn't going to get burned and didn't have a chef screaming at me, yeah. that that was where I needed to go. But <laughs> a safe place sometimes. It's a safe place. <laughs> but but the energy of a restaurant, like instantly for me, yeah. just the tension and the pace and the flow and... and um, that was immediate for me, and it was like theater, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was instantaneous. I just, it was like going, stepping into another world that even even back then, before Top Chef and the internet, and it seemed glamorous to me. Yeah. I thought, wow, what is this world? Yeah. I love that you have Fuddruckers in your background. Absolutely. We, <laughs> we moved to Orlando, Florida in 1992. <clears throat> and my mom's first job. So she never went to culinary school, uh, but both my parents are chefs. Oh, and cool. her first job in Florida was actually at Fuddruckers, mostly doing everything dessert, pastry. Mm-hmm. And from what I remember, eating, because this was, uh, we lived in Altamont Springs, so we were in the Burbs, yep. you know, and um, huge restaurant, like massive restaurant, but they were doing everything from scratch. They were yes. baking all the bread, and mm-hmm. then you would you could see the glass butcher's The, the butcher shop, room. yeah. And they oh, yeah. hanging whole sides of beef, yep. grinding their burgers, and Fuddruckers, like, it was hard to find a better burger back in, like, the early 90s. Like, Fuddruckers was, was the jam. It was amazing. We yeah. opened uh, in 1986 over by Proner Mall, and, I mean, there was a line out the door. Every yeah. day and every night I could possibly remember. Yeah. And you're right, it was... <laughs> the first butcher shop I'd ever seen. Right. And, you know, everything was being made from scratch, and it was, we were so busy. (laughs) We were so, it was like an anxiety attack every day (laughs) right before I'd walk in. Yeah, it's, I love hearing that people have Fuddruckers in their background, like, pre- like 2000s era. Yeah. It's like, you actually worked there, dude. Like, you, the, nothing was like automated. No, like, it was, no. <laughs> it I was had a the flat real top deal. and a wire and tickets yeah. were hung on a clothespin. And yeah. 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 Well, it's good. I'm glad that you, like, you got your, your career, you steeped yourself enough in back of the house to realize, like, you know what, guys? I think it's it's time for me to be front of the house. Yeah, so. <laughs> I yeah, I I, get, I call it dumb luck or divine intervention, one right. way or the other. <laughs> yeah, either way, it's it's the a other benefit. Way I yeah. ended up where I needed to be. Yeah. So, um, how did you make your way to Charleston? So, <laughs> I had a brief little moment in time. So, in high school. Um, when I wasn't working in restaurants, I figured out that you could make a lot of money working security at concerts. So at the center stage, when I was 16 years old in 1985, a buddy of mine said, Hey, you want to make a hundred bucks tonight? What? (laughs) Yes. Okay. There's this band, the Ramones they're playing. Have you heard of the Ramones? I'm like, I saw that movie rock and roll high school. They're playing at the center stage. It's sold out. You're going to work stage security. So I get there. And, you know, this it might have been 85. Um, 
you know, it, it, the Metroplex, these are all old. It, like the punk scene was just starting to happen in Atlanta. Oh, Album awesome. 88. <laughs> uh, there's just the whole scene. So uh, the Metroplex was down on Marietta, and I saw like the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and all these no bands. Way. So my first concert gig was standing on the stage as the mosh pit was grinding and people were flying up in the air and I was to push them back out into the audience <laughs> all night long standing <laughs> next to Joey Ramone. So from like in those years and so that led to like I worked at the Roxy which is now the I don't Coca-Cola the Buckhead Theater. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. And then eventually it's hey there's a gig at the Omni which is now Phillips Place. Um, Van Halen's coming. Do you want to work? And and if you want to make another hundred bucks, you can help them load in the equipment. You just have to be there at noon. So suddenly, I'm in this subculture in Atlanta of this of the music scene, hmm. and um, hair bands were were the rule of the day. And I had this little management company. It's it's hilarious to think about now, but I managed five local Atlanta bands that were like you know spandex makeup. And they would sell out the Roxy, playing all original music. Nice. And so the long and the short of it is I was in, uh, I my hair was halfway down my back. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Dirt that's just come out on Netflix about yet. Motley Crue, you should. Yeah, I've, I've, funny seen it, to, I've seen that it's there. I just haven't had a yeah, chance to watch yeah, it it's, yet. It's in interesting. But anyway, <laughs> long story short, I uh, my grandmother passed away. I show up to the funeral. Long hair, snakeskin boots, spurs, eyeliner. My sister had moved to Charleston and had gotten married. And uh, so the family was all there. And they were, of course, aghast at what they witnessed when I entered. And so I guess it was kind of an intervention. They said, you're going to cut all your hair. You're going to move to Charleston and you're going to go to college. And so I did. I, I was, I, you know, there's there's these random moments in my life where I'm just okay. I'll do that. Yeah, um, I made and, a note at like 11 minutes and 15 seconds, and I'm gonna make sure that I somehow hound you for a photo of you with long hair and snakeskin boots for the episode page. It's <laughs> too good to pass up. I know it's pretty good. <laughs> um, anyway, long story short, I moved to Charleston with no real, uh, you know, ha having cooked in the restaurants around Atlanta, and um, I got a job on Kiowa Island at the beach bar i didn't absolutely didn't know what i was doing i'd seen that movie cocktail that tom cruise is in <laughs> where he goes down to the islands and i'm like okay i'll be that guy yeah <laughs> cut all cut all my hair off and uh the first day we got absolutely murdered and my manager came up to me at the end of the shift and she's like you've never done this before have you and i was like no and she's you're cute i'll let you stay and so that was the beginning of my front of the house career. I wish it was like more elegant than that, but uh, it was the the frozen drink machine. We still were doing many bottles in South Carolina, so it was making strawberry daiquiris every day. Nice. And um, that um, one of my original member mentors, who would go on to found the Fifth Group, came out to have a drink at that bar. <laughs> And saw me hustling and said, hey, we're opening this restaurant, Magnolia's downtown. You're a young guy. You should come downtown and work with us. And that literally was how it all, I mean, it was just one of those moments where, and, and this his name was Chris Goss. He was one of the founders. He's no longer involved. But, oh, okay. And Steve Simon, who's still there, they hired me at Magnolia's. And I was a 22-year-old kid who didn't know anything about fine dining. Mm-hmm but um, had a big passion for taking care of people, for making people happy. Um, 
you know, I got I got a baptism into fine dining. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in Charleston. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean between, you know, life in Atlanta and then making your way to um, arguably one of the depending on depending on which way you come at it whether it's from the dining perspective or from the industry perspective cutting your teeth on anything in the industry charleston is um either toe-to-toe with i think how atlanta is today maybe Mm -hmm. not back in like the 90s but um but i mean equally a very um competitive and also very real culinary city absolutely yeah and i i think it's uh i mean i was just in charleston for food and wine and the um the amount of the amount of restaurants just seems to somehow like continually in concentric circles just grow up more and more now like people like now well we started here but now we're on the roof right (laughs) yeah it continues to grow in really interesting ways but um but that's really cool that uh that you got your start with the guys from fifth group too so Absolutely. How I mean, long they're, you, they're the reason that I'm here. Yeah. How long were you guys working together at Magnolia's? So we, I was there with them for about a year and a half. And then um, Chris Goss that I mentioned, his uncle was Tom Parcell, who was the owner of Magnolia's. He was the money. Um, there was a family falling out, as these things do. Um, and Chris and Steve decided to come to Atlanta and open South City Kitchen. I had just kind of gotten to Charleston. So I really liked those guys, but I didn't, I, I was kind of rooted in Charleston. And so then I opened the, that, that group's second concept, Blossom Cafe, which was really kind of, um, you know, it, it was a Mediterranean bistro, which at the time, which today sounds sort of innocuous, but at the time we were like the first restaurant in Charleston that wasn't serving grits right. and we were pouring <laughs> white Spanish whites by the glass and doing right. wood burning oven pizzas that weren't pepperoni and mushroom. Mm. And so we were doing risottos and orzos and oven baking fish. And it was really cool at the time. It was groundbreaking. Um, and uh, so, so was there for a while, but then eventually um, got recruited to come back and open up Canoe in Atlanta. Oh, so I wow. came back here and was the wine director for the first two years. Wine had become a big passion uh, during the years in Charleston. And, um, and so came back and opened up Canoe for about two years, but then missed, missed the beach and yeah. had to, the traffic. It was funny. Atlanta had changed for me in my mind at that right. point, you know. Um, and kind of quickly went back to the beach. Yeah. So, so you've got quite a few years of industry experience mm-hmm. under your belt. Yeah. So what are the beginning stages of Indigo Road? Like, where does this make its way into your story? So it'll, this summer will be 10 years. Wow. Um, so I had had, I had somehow ended up in a corporate F and B job. I was a, over vice president of food and beverage for a hotel company. And in 08, I got laid off as many people did. Um, and I joke that I couldn't find a job, so I started a company. I, you know, it was interesting. I was hiking in Highlands, North Carolina, and I was hiking around a waterfall, and call it meditation, call it manifestation, call it prayer, whatever sort of works. I was really reflecting on, okay, I'm about to turn 40. I've had this big career that, you know, on paper is good, and I knew I would get a job, but I, I really was centered on I want to make an impact on other people. And I didn't know exactly what that looked like. I think probably 
uh, on the surface, it was I want to pass along the gift of hospitality the way that the fifth group had given it to me and on a younger generation. Um, I had no idea that all of the different ways that I would be given the privilege of making an impact would happen, but I was very centered on, and I actually wrote in my journal, I said, you know, I want to, I want to have a, I want to be involved in a company that impacts people's lives in a positive way. Yeah. And 15 minutes after I wrote that, I got a call from the guys that had invested in an Oak Steakhouse in Charleston. Um, so I did not open the original Oak. Oh. Um, so it was, they called me because the restaurant was in trouble. It was the recession. Um, and asked me to come to Charleston. And, and it was so funny because I was, you know, had my mind on other things. So anyway, I, I came back to Charleston um, thinking I would do a 30-day consulting job. And um, met the met the owners. And they said, hey, we want you to stay. And I said, well, here's the thing. Um one restaurant can't afford me because you're already not making money. So we're going to have to open more. I know you have one that's not making money. You're going to have to invest in more. <laughs> and anybody else would have laughed, but they agreed to it. So, yeah, I, I um, came back to Charleston and, and met the two guys that are my partners now and convinced them to invest in another restaurant when the one they had wasn't making money. And, I, you know, I think a lot about that moment, and b both those moments, wanting to make an impact in, in the beginning of this partnership. And it was, uh, it, and, and so that's how the company was started. And we wow. opened Oku, mm -hmm. um, which was our second concept in Charleston. And, you know, it was, um, you know, that was 10 years ago. Wow. And, and now, it, it, and it's, a right place, right time, divine intervention, whatever works. But, you know, I was I was very – I wanted to have a company with a purpose beyond yeah. opening restaurants and making money. Yeah, and, I mean, 10 years. I mean, and 10 years in the, the footprint that Indigo Road has is pretty significant. I mean, between Atlanta, Charleston, Charlotte, and Nashville, correct? Or, uh, and no, Raleigh. Or Raleigh, yes. And Raleigh, Nashville, Charlotte, and D.C. That's right. Yeah. And so – uh, you already mentioned Oak being mm -hmm. one of them, Oku, yep. Yep. which is phenomenal sushi. By yeah, the way. I love it. Um, never, I've, I've, I never turn down sushi typically. Right. Um, so I, I do. Uh, it's my favorite. Japanese food is my favorite. Oh food yeah, especially, especially like omakase. Like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's just that. Like, that's another level. Like sushi flipped on its head, and you're like, this is like unlike anything else. Right. You know? That's right. So it's way better than just getting California rolls. You know? which yes. a lot of people consider to be the sushi experience that is available to them. Well, you um, know what's crazy? When you go to Tokyo or anywhere in Japan, you will not see a sushi roll <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And, and listen, that's why I always tell people we are not a traditional Japanese restaurant. Right. We're a modern Japanese restaurant, but because we're trying to make sushi approachable. Yeah. Let's so, be honest. If omakase was the only thing available. Yeah. Very few people would, you know. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I mean, because if you go to Asia and you're like, uh, orange chicken anywhere? Like, what is that? Right. How do you make that? <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah, uh, sure. it's just one of those things. But, um, but then also, I mean, we're sitting here in Donetto, mm -hmm. and then, sure, and then Coletta and uh, Tiny Lou's. So yeah. did I cover? Did I cover everything? Uh, pretty I much. I mean, the, I the I Macintosh. We, you know, we've got a lot of one-offs. There's a, yeah. we have a speakeasy in Charleston, the Cocktail Club. Yes, and, yes. And that's, that that's another you one. walk up these stairs, and it's like you couldn't recreate 
what you see and so it was like we should do a bar here yeah um, i've actually been to so a cocktail club and then there's a few other places that are just so quintessentially charleston very and much that, so. that's one of them like gin joints another one gin joint but like the that, belmont yeah yeah it's yeah, just it places that like they just work so well because they're so great but they're also because they're in charleston like, right it's it's, it's it's awesome i've been asked several times why haven't you opened another cocktail club because it's been very successful right and it cost about a third of what a restaurant costs <laughs> and you know i always say it's about that place yeah it's you couldn't I, I, it's just about that place totally yeah. i mean it's something about the architecture in charleston too it just it speaks different volumes of approachability fun and memory especially yeah. so now it's yeah. a really special place too. it is it really is um so <laughs> 10 years and that that number of concepts and especially the footprint that you guys have across so many cities like either um you know multi-unit or even just one-off like singular mm-hmm. concept sure. um first of all that's an amazing uh just timeline. That's incredible. We've been busy. Yeah. I was going to say busy, busy might not actually do it justice, man. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> funny when you're sober and I know we're going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, you, and you wake up early, you got a lot of energy, right? A lot of our growth too. you know, growth can be a dirty word in the independent high yeah. touch restaurant world. A lot of it has been about our people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of my, I, I ask our, our team, like always like, what is your higher purpose? Meaning, what are you doing here other than, what are you doing on this planet? What what are you here to do other than earn a paycheck? And, you know, creating abundance for other people is a big higher purpose for me. Right. So a lot of our growth has been about, you know, you take your best GM and he's running a restaurant and he's making X and you, and you go, look, this restaurant's not going to double in revenue. So your salary, therefore, there's a, there's a, there's a ceiling to what your going to be able to earn um and and let's be honest restaurant wages that's been historically fairly low yeah um but then you take that guy and you say well what if we opened another restaurant and you oversaw both of them and now you've just increased his his income by 30 percent a where do you think his excitement level is right (laughs) um b it feels good yeah um and so a lot of our growth like i i could there's probably a dozen Indigo Road folks I could put in here right now and 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 say, you know, they're overseeing this many restaurants, they're doing this. Wow. He's a partner in this. And so and and you know, you th- that is so much more fulfilling than hey, we open 10 more restaurants and this is the sales and um so a lot of our growth has been about the growth of our people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh it, it's especially crucial, you know, to have, um, I mean, that, that can be just as much of a backbone as like the, you know, watertight concept you right. know, of like, do we have the right person to actually help us get this thing off the ground? Like, are we going to be able to have the right leadership to build the infrastructure and another round of people to come up through, you know, the work right. of our organization? And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it really is amazing. I mean, um, I, I think, you know, I, th- I knew that when you guys opened Tiny Lou's, um, I, I started to put all that together that, you know, it was you guys like, because I knew that you guys had Donetto and, um, but then, you know, just seeing, seeing that, that much footprint and then also seeing 10 years next to that. I mean, that, that to me has gotten more of like the mark of like, oh, 25 years. Yeah, yeah man, they've been around for a long time, but right. that's an accelerated track. So congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, Tiny Lou's has been, I worked on Tiny Lou's. So we had four restaurants. When I started working on Tiny Loose, we have Whoa. 18. 
now. Um, I, I've jokingly said it was my favorite nonprofit project, but I, <laughs> but I don't mean that from a the ownership of the hotel are great guys, and very few people would have it you know stayed the course with that project, gone through the hurdles, getting financing, not branding it a Marriott or a Hilton. Um, but yeah, you know, seven years ago, it was funny growing up, uh, like even the Southern restaurants, even the Magnolias, the, the chefs that you would come across were cooking Southern food, but most of them had been trained classically French. Right. And so you would see that influence in food, yep. which would naturally lead you to eat at French restaurants, learn about French wine. And, you know, Frank Stett from Highlands Bar and Grill, of course, he, you know, traveled France before starting to cook in the south and and the last decade the the younger the younger generation of chefs has been very much asia the lines are much more blurred and so i seven years ago i said you know i think french is going to have a comeback at some point now i had no idea um and, and i also with the the hotel being built in the 1920s i thought about that's when Moulin Rouge in, you know, in France was happening, the Belle Opaque period. Wouldn't it be cool to just do a French restaurant? Um, I could not have predicted nor planned. The team that we have at Tiny Lou's, you can't – it's a dream team. I mean, Jeb Aldrich is such an amazing chef. Claudia Martinez, our pastry chef, is like 26 years old. I haven't seen a pastry chef like her in 10 to 15 years. Her, her, her menu is out of control. It's and, awesome. And, and her level <laughs> of technique at that age. Right. Um, you know, Nick Asiotis, just everybody. I couldn't have. So so I say, yes, Tiny Lou's was my idea, but I, you, I don't take a lot of credit for what they're, they're – they, they have exceeded every expectation I had. Yeah. Um, and luckily, French is now having a comeback. So call yeah. that dumb luck, or you know, <laughs> some 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 uh, you it's, know divine timing. Yeah. It's very fitting, though. I mean, I think uh, I sat down with Jeb a few weeks ago, and you know, just hearing like the the other side of the story yeah. as well. You know, I mean, I think uh, Hotel Claremont. You know, the amount of infamy in that little oh, sure. square block of you know the east side of Atlanta, and it is now just a beacon of. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, the rooftop. <laughs> I mean, like there is just it's it is such like a visual like fun house, right? It, it, it just, is the whole thing. Like you the, walk it in, all it, is. Yeah, it feels like a Wes Anderson film, and then the mm. food is amazing, and then the pastries amazing. Then you go up to the rooftop, and you're like, I can see all of Atlanta, and there's right. AstroTurf, and the cocktails are all like it is just uh, it, it's like the perfect like fun house for like adults. Right. It's great. And you couldn't have pre-planned the history of the Claremont. I mean, it's, I I have said since the day it opened, I've said to my team, like, you know, I'm probably not going to get another project like this in my career. I mean, it's just, it's so special. And, uh, and it was worth the seven years. I mean, it was more than worth it. Yeah. So, And, and I think we moved, uh, to Atlanta about, um, little less than six years ago. So watching, you know, just this super, awesome old building not just get dozed but then it turns into a project very much like pond city or Krog. Yes, sure. and it's just like let's use what's already there for us and then it becomes something that and now we, now you're watching people consume this project you know like you're watching people become a part of it it's um it's just so nice you know it's it's so it's so nice to let it become this this part of atlanta culture where it's hard to describe it to like relatives that don't live in atlanta they're like um 
you're talking about like the strip club, right? <laughs> you're like, it's far more than that, yeah. you know? And it has an endearing part of most people's lives. Like you just gotta, you gotta understand that side of it. But then, you know, understanding the history, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's really cool. I think, I just think it's a really awesome project that you guys have. It, it's been a lot of fun. My 82 year old mother called me about a year ago. She was at choir practice at church. <laughs> And there had been, there had been an article and one of the articles about the opening, and and my name was listed, and so someone her someone in her choir said, now now your son is involved in the strip club, oh, <laughs> and yeah. so I get a call from my mom, and now Steve, are you are you no mom? We're opening a restaurant. <laughs> it's it is it's hard to describe. Like if you yeah, it's like well anyway yeah, it's fun yeah, um, but restaurants aside. Um, there's uh there's even more to your story that's that's really really awesome and has huge implications into the industry and um there's a major part of your story that I kind of want to unpack just a little bit before sure. we get into um the organization but there's um there's a big part of your story and I've I've read about this so I'm mean, I'm excited to sit down and chat with you about it but um being in the industry and sobriety there's a big there, there's a there's a big wall that a lot of people have to get over that has a lot of um has a lot of hold on people's lives and yes. that's a part of your story as well and um but that's also birthed a really beautiful um organization that you're now i mean even with indigo road you guys are doing so much to build infrastructure in people's lives and then there's also this other part that you guys or that you've done with with ben's friends which is really awesome so yeah. I, I if you if you're if you want i mean i'd oh, love yeah, to hear yeah. like, that Absolutely. part of your story and then i'd sure. love to hear how that also brought about ben's friends yeah so i'll um you know i i uh started drinking at 11 um father died really early grandfather died nine months later was experienced some homelessness in Midtown Atlanta, ironically, uh, as a teenager. And, um, you know, drugs and alcohol were just, I mean, quickly, 13, 14, 15, were just a part of my story. Um, and I get asked this a lot about the industry, like, well, do you think the industry makes people alcoholics? No. Um, did, did I find a home in that there is a, there's a level of love and acceptance in the restaurant industry for all walks of life. Yes. And I think that's really beautiful. It also has some dysfunctional elements to it that I'm, I'm really grateful that right now as an industry, we're finally having that conversation. But so I, you know, managed to progress in my career drinking seven nights a week. It's very much a part of the culture. We go to work, we serve 200 people, the adrenaline spike through the roof. We go out after work, you know, everybody else's happy hours at five in the afternoon. Ours is at midnight. Mm. Well, when it's midnight, there are other elements that are going on at midnight. They're drugs. I mean, it just, it's a part of, and there was always this sort of badge of honor, especially in the nineties of like, you know, work hard, play hard. This is what we do. We go out, we work 18 hours a day, then we drink for three or four, then you sleep, you pass out, you come to, you go back to work. And no matter what, you don't not show up to work. So you show up hungover, you show up still awake, um, but you show up. And that was kind of our code. And it was accepted, and nobody batted an eye at it. And, you know, I, as many people that have addiction in their story, at some point you cross a line where it's gone from I'm having a ball to I'm ha I, this is a necessity. 
Like I don't have a choice anymore. Yeah. Now I'm going out because I have to go out because I can't stop. And I was a benefit, uh, benefactor um, of, of an intervention. The gentleman that owned the Peninsula Grill in Charleston, a restaurant I was running, I came to work one day and he said, you have a choice. You can clean out your office or you can go to rehab. And, wow. I, and I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. Every fiber in my being wanted to tell this guy, F off, who, the, who, who do you think you are? And what's so sad about alcoholism is the only other thought in my head was I need a drink. So here I'm being faced with, and I even asked him, I said, can I walk around the block and think about this for a minute? And there was a bar, like I literally was like, I need to go do a shot and try and get my act together. And he knew better. He said, nope, you're going to decide right now. And I, and I said, okay, I'll go. And I, I don't know why I did. Um, mm. because everything in me was rebellious and, um, and I wasn't even sure, I mean, like sobriety in the restaurant business, this was 17 and a half years ago. I didn't know anybody who didn't drink in the business. That was absurd. Um, but I went because I was tired and I was tired of living the life I was living. And I came back, uh, to running a $5 million, like I went to rehab six, six weeks later, it's Saturday night and I'm on the floor. Wow, And I'll never forget this. Somebody walked up to me and handed a bottle of wine and said, can you go open this on table 12? And I had this panic attack and I thought, I can't, I can't do this. And I handed the bottle to somebody else and the restaurant had a rooftop and I went up to the rooftop and just the word surrender or the word let go just kind of came to my mind. And I thought everything's going to be all right. And so for years, I have worked in the restaurant business and been sober. I didn't know anybody else that was sober. And matter of fact, when I got out of rehab, there was a betting pool around town on what the over under was for how long I would stay sober. Wow. And, you know, have spent the better part of, you know, and, and gratefully, even before this moment in time, slowly there's this trickle that you see of people that are like, no, I don't drink. But you also see a lot of people who get sober in the industry and they have to get out mm. because the, 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 the environment is yeah. just hasn't been very it's a, supportive. It's a stronghold, too. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, and, you know, the irony as these things happen, uh, Mickey Bast, who's a restaurateur in Charleston, he's sober. Um, we sat down a couple of years before Ben's Friends was formed said, you know, we really ought to do something to give back to the industry. And, of course, we said, oh, we're too busy. Um, and so about two and a half years ago, um, uh, Ben Murray, who was a chef who had opened canoe with me, mm -hmm. that's where I had met Ben. Um, I had lost touch with him for some years and, and a mutual friend, Gina Barry had said, Hey, you know, I know, you know, Ben, if you ever need somebody to help you open a restaurant, short term work, uh, he, he would be great. So we were opening a restaurant in, uh, Florence, South Carolina town hall. And I texted him and said, hey, I need, we're short in the kitchen. We'll put you up in a hotel. Why don't you come help us? I hadn't seen Ben in 10 years. He walked in. He looked like Ben. Ben, de the words depressed were never a word you would associate with Ben Murray. He, mm. was, he was more like Dean Martin at the Rat Pack. You know, always had a joke. Blues guitar player, life of the party, lampshade on his head. I mean, <laughs> not the guy that was depressed. Yeah. He walked in and he said, "What you know, good to see you. You know, I've really cleaned my act up. 
I didn't, I mean, Ben and I had done a lot of drugs together in the 90s, but in our business, historically, clean my act up, there's a pretty wide range in what that means. And I didn't ask a lot of questions. Um, ben worked for us for six weeks. I never saw him take a drink. He worked 15 hours a day, but apparently he was going back. And I didn't even know he had been struggling. I, I knew nothing. Mm. Um, long story short, Ben killed himself in the hotel room. Um, mm. He had been drinking, and then he had not shown up. And we had this text exchange where I was like, man, I really want to talk to you. And he would locked himself in his hotel room and wouldn't come out. He wouldn't talk to me. He would only text and, you know, I had the thought that I should call the police, and I didn't because um, I didn't want to create a bunch of drama. And I thought, you know what, he's drunk. He just needs to sleep it off. Uh, and so a couple of days later, he committed suicide. Man. And, you know, when I called, and, and so, so a couple of things, you know, when we, the night we opened that restaurant, there were four other chefs that are buddies of mine that are sober that were working in the kitchen with Ben. Wow. And so my, my one of the things that just I couldn't get away from was what was it in Ben that felt like that he felt like he couldn't ask those guys for help? Hmm. What what was it cultural? Was it the machismo code of the restaurant business? Right. Like we you know um and so when I called his mother uh you know and obviously I'll remember that phone call for the rest of my life. She let me know he'd been in and out of detox five or six times, that he had struggled with sobriety. And, you know, it was just this, like, moment for me where I was like, we have got to change. Nobody even knew the guy was struggling. Mm. And now he's dead. Um, we've got to change this in our industry. And so we founded Ben's Friends. Um, it was two and a half, yeah, two and a half years ago. And thankfully, and I say this because the media, I, I, you know, about that time is when nationally some pretty high profile chefs started getting sober. Right. And the media really started to sort of have this conversation. I certainly don't think Ben's friends created the conversation, but, um, and now we're in seven cities. So, so Ben's friends is a weekly support group. It meets for an hour, um, a week, sometimes two. Um, it's a support group it's a support group of people that already are sober in the business. It's, a, it's only for people in the business. And it's a support group for people that are trying to get sober. Um, we're connected to therapeutic communities, sober living houses. So we certainly don't say we think one hour a week is going to cure you, um, right? But it's a start. And yeah. it's a beginning. And it, I mean, we've got, I think, five other cities lined up to launch in the net. Like, literally, the reason we would be launching faster if we didn't all have day jobs. Right. Um, the response has been un overwhelming. And, and, you know, what's cool about being two years old now is now people are starting to celebrate two years of sobriety. And, and, and they're walking in going, I knew how to do it because of Ben's friends. You know, they have stigmas about, 12-step groups or stigmas about religion right. or, or whatever the... But for some reason, when they know that they're walking into a room of restaurant people... Exactly. You know, and, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because to 
you know, to the, to the outsider looking in from, I'm an individual in need of something and there's an organization or an outfit and, but am I wearing the right shirt? Does my hair look right? Do I speak the lingo? Do I have the right background? Like there's so many factors that are typically something that will turn someone away. Be it, be it like, you know, a, um, a religious organization or anything else, but especially, but, but for someone who's looking for not only help, but especially immediate acceptance of like, Hey, there's no prerequisite, you know, like if anything, I mean, it's great that you work in the industry, but like, that's why this is here. You know, it might not be the cure all, but it absolutely is that first step. It is. It's a platform. It's, you know, and, and, um, it was interesting. There was a girl in Ben's friends, Charleston, a couple weeks ago, and she came in and she just had this energy around her. She's just smiling, bright. And she started talking and I remembered her a year prior, dark circles around her eyes, wouldn't look anybody in the eye, would could, would barely like, and we don't make people do anything they don't want to, but she spoke that day, but couldn't barely hear her. And I'm looking at this person who is like filled with life, filled with energy. And she said, I, the only reason I'm not dead is because I knew that I could come to a Ben's friends meeting. And so, mm-hmm. You know, those are the moments that, like, I can open a thousand more restaurants. Nothing touches that. Yeah. You know, there's nothing I will ever do in my business life that will be as impactful as those moments. Because, you know, I mean, we we had a guy come in. He worked for us, hooked on heroin. And his roommate was his drug dealer. Oh, man. And, you know, he was like, I, I want to get clean, but I, I, don't, I can't go home tonight. And we were able to put him in a sober living house. And I think he's he just celebrated 18 months of sobriety. Wow. You know, so, and I don't know that if we weren't restaurant people, there's just, it's hard to put into words this sense of, like, we're all in the boat rowing together. We're common purpose, shared purpose, whatever. But you you know, you can walk into a Ben's Friends meeting and you're going to, hear the same language that you hear every day in your life the only difference is we're talking about it's eight o'clock on a saturday night and we're talking about how we handle going home instead of going to the bar right and how we're making healthier choices and and so that language is universal in our business you know yeah for sure um i i think it's um it's a major step to see the the juxtaposition of Ben's friends and Indigo road and just the industry in general, where, um, you know, I, I grew up with both my parents in the restaurant industry my entire life. And, um, I knew a lot of guys, you know, that my mom worked with, or like my dad worked with. And it was like this, you know, it was almost like, you know, you kind of wore it like it was your members only jacket. Absolutely. You know, it's like, just the thing, but the, yeah. the machismo thing, like it was totally there, but I, you know, growing up as a, you know, I don't know, nine-year-old kid like that's just what I associated it's like you're kind of the cut from the degenerate like drunkard cloth it might not be something that's you know hereditary or whatever it's just this is part of the culture you subscribe to this because you work on the line dude right you know oh yeah and um it it is hard because I think I think some of those norms are starting to get broken because you have a lot of very well-known established chefs. And then, um, you know, I think people are bringing more light to it. And I think it's becoming more of an issue that people are really wanting to address of like, this isn't 
you know, just, uh, this isn't just, you know, the stigma of working in the industry. Like it really is a problem and right. it's more about presenting solution. And, um, I think it's, a, it's amazing to be able to read, you know, that so much of your story is really inspiring now more than two years of being an organization. And now it has, you know, huge influence on people's stories. It's, um, it's just so cool to see things that are so close together and it's not, it's not five degrees of separation away from the restaurant industry. It's like, well, we're going to make you work for it because, you know, you have to leave, you know, the comfort and then go find help. It's like, dude, it's right on your doorstep. Right. It's right here. And, and what's also been cool and that I'm internally grateful for is the industry as a whole. Like I have bartenders at our restaurants that they're not at Ben's friends. They don't think they have a problem, but they'll stop me and go, Hey, how's Ben's friends going? Hmm. Like there's this acceptance in our industry. I just was speaking at a, at a United States bartenders guild and I went on right after the bourbon distiller, you know, and they're <laughs> sipping bourbon and now I'm talking about sobriety. Right. It was a little <laughs> odd, but, but they, but you know what? Everybody stayed. And everybody wanted to hear it, even if they don't think themselves they have it. And so, so what feels good is that our whole industry is going, you know, I say this all the time, like we spend every night taking care of other people. I feel like we're just now starting to figure out how to take care of each other and in a really meaningful way, you know, other than, hey, you know, your bar tab's on me tonight. And listen, that's great too. I mean, I say all the time, I don't think alcohol is bad. It was bad for me. Yeah. And it's bad for a lot of people. Um, but but just, I, I think that part of the thing, and this I don't know would occur to people outside of the recovery community, the thing that's so great about this acceptance, so alcoholism is the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease. Right, cancer patients are not walking around saying, <laughs> right. "I don't have cancer," but alcoholics are walking around saying, "I don't have a drinking problem." Every day, millions of alcoholics. So when you when we start to shift that social acceptance, that it's like it's like sobriety is not a curse, you know, like it's a healthy choice, and we should embrace those healthy choices. That's what feels so good for me in in our in our industry right now is that like everybody's embracing this idea of mental health. Yeah. And there are, there are lots of different forms of mental health beyond uh, uh, substance abuse. Sure. You know, that substance abuse is what Ben's Friends is addressing because it's, it was my story and, 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 you know, I feel like I have some experience to share. But I just, I, I just think that, that there's still a lot of challenges in our industry. But when you see the big topics, the Me Too, the substance that the big things that are now starting to make our industry more humane. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And I'm glad to be a small part of it for sure. Yeah. Big time. Um, that's an incredible story. It <laughs> is. I'm, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, is that my story? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even reading about it, you know, I mean, I, I think I read that, that portion of your story where it's like, here's your intervention, you know, and it's, yeah. um, it's not, uh, it's not a whole lot of like this grandiose, like let's build up what's going on. It's like make a choice. Make a choice you know? right now. Yeah, make a choice right now. Yeah. And and speaking of the disease telling you you don't have a disease, I mean, in that moment, the right. only thing I could see was I need to get out of here and I need to have a cocktail. And, you know, one of the guys uh, that worked at Peninsula at that time, uh, he died two weeks ago. He drank, him, drank himself to death. Oh, man. And I, I think about all the time, like if I hadn't made that, that one choice, if I had walked out of the office that day and said, screw you, I'm out of here, 
which is what I wanted to do, like every fiber in my being, I'd be dead hmm. from that one moment. And so I, I, I don't think, I, I just feel really grateful. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. know why I just made that decision in that yeah. moment because I certainly didn't want to. Right. Um, but it's, uh, you never know the ripple effect that one decision in your life will make. So it's pretty cool to be on the other side and to be able to give back yeah. in this way. Cause this is for me, because this is my story. It's the most authentic way I can give back. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's, I don't know. It's just, it's a, again, there's nothing I'll ever do. Like I love the Indigo road. I love my Indigo road sisters and brothers and love what we do every night for our guests, helping somebody save themselves. That's something that's more powerful than, opening a French restaurant. Although I love my, I love the French yeah. restaurant. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. But, um, man, the work that you guys are doing with the Indigo road and also, uh, with Ben's friends, um, you guys are feeding people in a, in a yeah. really great way. Yeah. And, um, with the last like minute here, Steve, uh, tell people where they can learn more about the Indigo road other than just let's go hang out at tiny Lou's and have a great old time but yeah. also where can people learn more about Ben's friends sure so Ben's friends is um, uh, Ben's friends hope.com um, and the indigo road.com um, and yeah you can see everything we're doing there you know we have incredible outreach for our for our employees home loan buying programs mental health programs so there's a lot more we're doing beyond the scope of Ben's friends but you know, I would say this about Ben's friends because this is how it's growing. If if somebody's listening to this, and they're in a city and they want a Ben's friends, we want to bring you a Ben's friends. Reach out to us. I mean, that's that's literally how this is growing. An article gets written, somebody reads it. Gabe Rucker at Le Pigeon in Portland, Oregon, read something in Bon Appetit magazine. He reached out. And now we're in Oregon. Awesome. And that's one of our largest, most robust groups. Oh, that's great. You know, and and so literally that's what I would say to anyone that's listening to the podcast. If if you're somewhere where you think that, that Ben's friends could be helpful, and let's be honest, where wouldn't Ben's friends be helpful? Yeah. Reach out. Um, yeah. we get emails every day, um, and we respond within twenty four hours. But I mean our goal literally is fifty states. Yeah. And That's my awesome. co-founder Mickey thinks I'm insane, but uh, <laughs> you know, but I don't think small, you know. Yeah, so it's great. Yeah. Well, Steve, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for, I mean, thank you for for feeding me over the years yeah, and sure. continuing to do into the future. But also, um, thanks for sharing your story, man. This is great. You're welcome. So, yeah, thanks I'll make so sure much that, for uh, asking. Yeah, and I'll make sure that everybody can find their way to the Indigo Road and especially Ben's friends. Cool. From everywhere. So, awesome. thanks again, man. You Appreciate bet. it. Thank you. Many thanks go out to Steve for joining me here for this episode, and I wanted to end with just another reminder to visit the episode page and educate yourself or anyone else around you on the work of Ben's friends. And if you need support, it's right here in the city. Please, again, go to our episode page for all of the links or go to bensfriendshope.com or go to bensfriendshope.com slash Atlanta for the local community here in the city, and you can learn everything at the website. This podcast is recorded all over our beautiful city and edited over on the east side of town by me, your host. Hello again. Our design is headed up by JJ Getz. And if you like what you hear, you can go and support the show on Patreon right now for just $5 a month. It's just atlfoodcast.com slash Patreon. I'm your host, Ben Getz, and you've been listening to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stay hungry.